this week on A to Z running, when should we run by effort and when should we not? What does that even mean? Everyone says effort, but it's never clear what it looks like. Well, we can help with that. Is Elliot Kipchoge a thing of the past? Recent events are leading some to wonder. Do you know the name Sifan Hassan yet? If you listen here, you probably do. But at this point, she probably needs to be a household name in running. And when you're 90 years old, what new thing will you try? Dot Sowerby has a good one. All this and more this week on A to Z Running. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive with information, inspiration, and coaching and training services. I'm Andy, and I am recording remotely from Texas. Thanks to Zach for holding down the fort the last couple of weeks and recording the podcast solo. This week, I wanted to interject with some things about Chicago. Congratulations to many of you who ran those races as well as others across the world. I'll be getting to that in the world of running. Isn't it so wonderful to hear the mellifluous voice of Andy? We we miss that voice, especially when we have to hear so much of Zach, which is not everyone's favorite thing to do, especially while you're running. But you're going to get a little more of that at least right now. So glad for some contributions from Andy here, even if uh, it, it can't be conversation side by side, which is always the preferred method. But it's going to be good nonetheless. Now, let me share with you very briefly, because if anyone listening is planning on being in Grand Rapids for the Grand Rapids Marathon and other events and has not yet registered, we can get you a discount if you don't already have one or aren't already using one. You can get 10% off with Take 10. That is Take 10. 10% off when you register for Grand Rapids events, marathon, half marathon, all that stuff. And if, uh, if you're going to do that, do it ASAP. Do not wait until Friday or Saturday to register for a Sunday race. That's just not the way to do it right now. Go on and do it and you can get that discount and that will be wonderful. Well, that being the case, remember our new format. We've got lots of exciting things to share here today. So let's get it all started with your questions. Remember that for this segment every week now, we're going to be answering one or two listener questions, and we're going to be including that at the same time each time. And you can submit questions now to be answered in a very timely fashion, which I think is valuable. I think it's helpful for this segment. So you can submit those questions anytime. If you can do so by the end of the week, then we can assure you that unless the docket's already full, we can get to your questions within that next episode. So we answer one or two each time. And as long as uh, we don't get a flood of questions each week, we get in, we get enough that we usually can queue up a few. And if we can't get to it on air, which does happen, um, as you can imagine, with only one or two questions answered on air, we respond to you in an email still. We will reply and we'll share thoughts. Um, and then we may throw it into a future episode if we're able to still as well. So you can submit those questions at a to zrunning.com slash question. Do that. Do it now. It's great. Now, let's get to our first question. Our first question here is from Craig. This one was slated to be answered in a previous instance, but we ran out of time. So we wanted to get to it here now. And Craig was asking about 
recovery, specifically about Whoop, if you're familiar with uh, Whoop recovery and their system. Um, this is a, uh, a question around uh, what may or may not be our recommendation. So we'll be able to share that thought here. Um, okay, so thank you, Craig, for asking. Here we go. Craig writes, this seems to be seems to complement the run based on feel approach. Have you tried this or used it? And is this the next step? Does this complement your coaching and the way that you we uh, support this run effort or effort based running? Um, I was telling a runner, Craig was telling a runner about you and the services, and he told me about this hoop. Are you going to recommend that we get it or use it? Uh, do you expect it to help a lot or just marginally? Good questions. Um, so, thank you for asking, Craig. Uh, thank you specifically for asking. Um, broadly as well as uh we can address your specific situation uh with sharing some additional details there too so craig, craig we we uh have talked about um in the past craig is running lots of marathons and so the idea of having something that optimizes recovery is that much more appealing um when you're doing a, a lot of difficult tasks in a small window of time whatever that window may be so let's share some thoughts about Whoop for a moment. Uh, first of all, if you're not familiar with Whoop, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about it so we understand the context of our response here. Um, basically, the, this is all about data. They have lots of data. Um, and they claim lab-level lab accuracy as well with that data. Um, noted uh, that they tend to focus most on the, the principles of rest and so sleep being a big piece of that um, and what things contribute then to recovery and they have this like evaluation of your level of recovery and whether you're ready for or you're recovered fully which means the implication is you're ready for they don't recommend like now you're ready to do a hard effort that's not the way they frame it they frame it as you are recovered or you're somewhat recovered or you're not recovered <laughs> essentially there's three tiers um okay so in general, before I get into the details of it, our take with these types of things is that they can be very helpful. We're going to be talking about biosensors specifically quite a bit in the in the upcoming very near future. Uh, we've got an interview queued up that we're going to be sharing with you. We've got some research on biosensing and all that's involved in that currently in running. And so that's going to be relevant. Um, but in a broad sense, these things can be helpful. But the principle, remember, that we desire is intuitive training as a baseline principle, which means we want to make decisions first based on our intuitive sense and then supported by such things as biosensing and such. Um, so that may or may not be a, a piece of the puzzle. We do not like how these things become the foundation for the decisions we make. That is a challenge to a number of our goals here. Um, so let's, let's, get a little bit further into it because whoop is relevant in a number of ways specifically whoop um claims are big and valuable um and we we're, we're not here to suggest that they may or may not be accurate claims but um with claims this big it should be considered seriously um basically they're suggesting that they can give you a clear picture of whether or not you are in fact fully recovered at any given moment in time usually it's like a every morning type of situation because after you sleep being that sleep is a piece of their puzzle here are the other pieces of their puzzle so the role of sleep i mentioned uh, but can additional contributing factors are heart rate variability 
which is a huge indicator for levels of stress, uh, physiological, mental, and otherwise, potentially, but certainly physiological stress. Uh, Resting heart rate, again, key indicators. Respiration, respiration rates, amount of sleep I mentioned, and even potentially, depending on which which level of whoop you have, they have a couple different, like some newer ones, um, even skin temperature as a piece in the puzzle. So this is telling me whether my body is working harder to maintain status quo or not, um, or easier. And so that's that's huge, right? That's That's really valuable. Is my body, while I'm just sitting here eating breakfast, having to do more than it should to keep me regular. Um, and if it is, that's a negative sign and ought to contribute to our decisions, right? About what we should engage in or attempt that day. So I do see the merit there and I am not going to at any point um, suggest that that is not valuable. Um, that's really very interesting stuff. So the use case here, by the way, then theoretically, we make decisions based on how we are told uh, how recovered we are according to whoop. Um, if you know, if it says I'm not recovered, I take it easy that day. If it says I'm fully recovered, then I go for it. You know, then I go hard. Um, the thought being, I could potentially go hard more often because I know I'm recovered well enough, or I could potentially ensure that I'm going easy when I might have otherwise not because it's saying I'm not recovered very well. Now the test cases are a little more precise. And so for instance, um, if whoop says go for it, like I, well, it doesn't say that if whoop says I'm recovered and I interpret that as I should go for it, um, then do I do that every time? And what if it says that every day for like four days in a row, then should I do hard efforts of running four days in a row? And, uh, the thought being, well, if it tells me when I wake up the next day that I'm fully recovered again, then theoretically I should be able to right? um, you see where I'm getting, <laughs> where I'm going with this. Um, a whoop is also, though, not technically capable of measuring things like mental and emotional fatigue. Although we, as we noted, mental stress, emotional stress manifests with physical consequences. So physical measures can potentially indicate that, but they don't differentiate that. They don't know that the that the level of stress is from one thing or another. Um, they they also likely can't identify degrees of some of those types of things. So if I'm really just at the end of a work day, just totally spent emotionally, like I've just, I'm just burnt. Um, there's a good chance it's not going to show on any of these data points, uh, any of these data at all, but it may be a very important contributing factor to what I try to do running wise. Um, so there, there are considerations here that make me hesitate to say, use this to the full degree the implications suggest we might be able to, but instead my recommendation then would be, I don't, I don't recommend any kind of broad scale, um, utilization of this resource specifically, except that I think this could be valuable and interesting potentially. And it's, it's worth, it's worth investigating. It's worth giving it a try. Certainly. Um, so to your question, Craig, and in your situation, uh, is it valuable to try it and see what it tells me? and see how that compares to what I feel and sense or intuit about what I'm doing already, that's an interesting comparison and could be worthwhile. I don't know what the investment is to make that happen and whether it's worth, uh, you know, it's an investment that's worth just a potential um, kind of trial experience, but it sounds intriguing and it certainly is 
has potential to be valuable if it can manifest in the way that it's intended to. All right. So that's a great question. Thank you for asking, Craig. Next question here, second one, because we got two this week, which is always good. A uh, question from Carol, uh, specifically about guidance for masters runners. And glad you asked, Carol. Um, she writes, I am 64 and so far still running marathons and hovering around the four hour mark. Nice work. Congrats. Very impressive stuff. Um, I have used a couple of books that focus on masters athletes, but I feel these are masters as in runners in their forties, but I have another 20 years on my legs noted, um, which is not the same thing. And so I'm glad you mentioned that a 40 year old runner and a 60 year old runner, not in the same situation. Um, do I continue to follow these authors? They've worked for me in the past or are there things I need to change? I'm still capable of running 50 miles per week. I strength train, cross train with master swimming, Love your thoughts. Thanks for asking, Carol. And wow, you're doing great work. It <laughs> sounds like you're doing uh, impressive stuff. Um, so there's a couple of key notes here as we're addressing your question specifically. The first is, and you're kind of touching on it, um, which is the, the longer we age as runners, and I don't mean just literal age, but also running age, both of these contribute here. Um, the further we get down that road, um, the less generalizable the recommendations become once we get past a certain point. So most runners benefit from the same kind of advice um, in, in very precise measures for most of our running career. But as we get farther into duration of engaging with the sport, um, much like in any situation where there's other unique confounding factors, this is a unique confounding factor because how our bodies respond to that type of trauma, which running is a type of trauma uh, physiologically, how our bodies respond to that um, changes over time and changes from ourselves versus ourselves later on, as well as versus others. And so you're going to run into things. That's where you start to manifest things like people have their chronic problems and issues that come up, which are going to influence recommendations. Uh, people also have uh, other considerations, other constraints that are going to be unique to their situation. So that more of that comes up and happens over time um, in most senses. So that's why we say it's not as generalizable, which means you're going to find in situations where it's like, um, you know, here's the advice of what masters runners should do. That may be broadly, especially valuable. Um, I, I would never discount it, but um, there may be specifics to your situation that require very different implementation or integration. And the case in point here is the number of times you're going to hear runners say things like, um, what, you know, when, when I started to, uh, reach a certain age, I found that I needed less of this and more of this, or I, I should have done these types of things and not these types of things. Um, and the same, the same age and the same context is reported in the exact opposite sense from someone else, right? It happens all the time. So part of that becomes a question of individual variability. And that's why I say that we can share a few specific general thoughts. It's not specific, a few specific thoughts in general. Uh, but knowing that uh, we need to really appeal to an individual situation. So Carol, your situation is not the same as someone else's. For instance, at 64, you're running marathons around the four hour mark, which is amazing and not common. Um, and you're running volumes that include up to like 50 miles a week, which is again, amazing and not common. Um, and so you're in a situation where you are 
at a different state than the general population might be who are running in their mid sixties. Um, so that's a consideration here. The other side of this is, and, and you shared a little bit more with me in, in our follow-up interaction, uh, some of the things you do in terms of some mobility and strength work and some of your kind of your regular routines, and that's going to be relevant too. So here are the broad, the sweeping considerations, and I'm going to apply them to your situation. Number one, um, as we age in running in general, uh, we have an increasing need for structural reinforcement. Um, part of this is because, and you'll see this in, in, all, in all the research on aging in general, um, our cellular structures decay over time. This is why aging is reflected in physical manifestations, right? Um, and so as that happens, we need to be aware of what a kind of strength and, mobi and mobility program looks like to reinforce sound structure. I'm not talking about running training at the moment. I, I am also, but specifically how I am using strength and mobility work to address this. Um, it's imperative to stay healthy long-term to address some of those chronic things that otherwise tend to pop up even more. Uh, but also it's one of those things that offsets or slows the effects of aging, um, being able to increase our strength capacity work, uh, is, is very important. Number two then, and it kind of goes very long, very, very similarly along with this, um, uh, the importance of consistent volumes of sustainable training. Now this, what I say by consistent volumes of sustainable training is high volume work insofar as I am capable of doing it safely, healthily. So that's where you mentioned like the 50 miles a week there. Um, in your particular situation, it's absolutely the case that um, the volumes are doing you good um, insofar as they're not injuring you. And it sounds like they're not. So why, why do the volumes matter? In a similar sense to the strength and mobility work, we can use uh, volume of training to offset or slow um, the effects of aging. We were shared a study not that long ago on the podcast where they looked at um, basically increasing volume by X percent every year um, keeps the negative effects of aging at uh, a plateau. They, they don't continue to grow. But that, you know, that has practical limits. You can't increase your volume every single year for the rest of your life. That would be bad. So instead, what we, what we talk about is, okay, what can I handle? Um, and how do I then implement training in a way to sustain that as close to that as consistently as possible? That's huge. The consistency has the most benefit to a new runner and to a runner who's been doing this for a long time. Those are the two areas that benefit the most from consistency and training. Not that everyone does, because of course everyone does, but you can get away with inconsistency a lot more when you're somewhere in the middle an experienced runner who is uh, still in the prime of their running potential, right? So if that's true, um, how do we find consistency? That's huge here. And then the third one is just a sense of um, neuromuscular diversity in what we're doing. Um, and that's where you're going to see over time for most runners, we tend to develop strictures to our physiology. And those are based around the activity we do the most, right? And so um, whoever you are, you know, whatever you do, that's going to be the case. But for runners, we, we tend to develop severe limitations around things that don't involve the kinds of functional movements associated with running. And 
it is within running the case as well because we'll find that most runners over time tend to see their degree of separation between types of efforts narrow so that I'm doing very similar degrees of effort all the time. That is a common anomaly in running in general. But as we get further and further into our running careers and further and further into our level of experience, how long, how much we've been doing this thing, that has greater and greater consequence. So we have to minimize that uh, consequence by keeping the gap as wide as, again, as we can sustainably healthily do. And that's why we continue to encourage things like um, highly neuro, neuromuscularly diverse uh, fartlek workouts, even for a runner who's 60s, 70s, and has been doing this for 40 years. Uh, we still suggest that same baseline recommendation of that kind of activity every week or at least close to every week um, if you can handle it. And if you can't, we look for other ways to do that. And that even insinuates things like alternative activities. You mentioned right here in your note, swimming. Great. I'm glad you swim because that's another piece in the puzzle of helping to encourage neuromuscular diversity in your activities. It's going to help across the board with everything you're doing. So that's where, when we talk about progressing further and further into our running careers, we have to maintain contact with those three principles in a broad sense. It's going to be necessary. Um, and we have to find how they apply best to our individual situation. And this is where things get trickier. As I mentioned with uh, the broad rule, number one, uh, less generalizable, less generalizable. Um, so Carol here in your situation, um, I think that the things that stand out to me the most are, I don't see, I do see rather substantial evidence for numbers one and two there that I just shared. Um, certainly you're doing some strength and mobility work. That's great. Continue to do it. Don't neglect the value of high load strength work. Um, it has to be, you know, tolerable load. But the thing that we lose the most is maximum muscle contraction. Uh, when we talk about what this is why when you see in running careers, when you see uh, the shifts that happen, um, the runners that are the best at the shorter distances, uh, like the especially like the middle shorter distances, 800 meters, 1500 meters, they're almost always younger runners, not always, but almost always. And the same is true for just about everything else that's shorter than that too. But interestingly enough, there's a, there's a fascinating um, 100 meter sprinting has uh, has a lot of veteran runners compared to other events. And, it's, and that's a curious one. I don't know exactly why. I haven't looked into it terribly. But point is maximum muscle contraction is something that we lose fastest um, in general in life. Now, we can slow that loss by doing some high load, heavy strength work. So strength work for a runner as we age should not be this mindset of like, oh, I'll do more circuit stuff now, or, you know, do less of that like heavyweight stuff because I'm not young and anymore. Actually, it's more important to do that stuff as I age as a runner than it was when I was 25 and, you know, could lift everything that I set my eyes on, right? Which is never true for me, but I'm sure it is for some people. So that being the case, Yes. Um, Carol, I think you have uh, decent contact with those things. That would be my, my reminder to you there in the strength side of it. Then the other layer here that I don't necessarily see as much evidence for is 
ensuring high levels of neuromuscular diversity. So you do have some swimming activity, which is great. Um, you're doing a number of those other things, which all help to it. You mentioned like a Pilates class. All of that is good. Um, make sure that you're doing things like precision and activation drills regularly. We should, the longer we run, the more important those things become. We should never stop doing daily precision and activation drills, both for the, the running mechanic of it all and for the neuromuscular activity involved in that. So do those things. Plus in your running workouts, make sure that on some kind of regular basis, you're doing highly diverse workouts. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean 400 meter repeats because 400 meter repeats are not diverse enough. It's the same kind of thing. Now they're more diverse than, you know, the run you did the day before, obviously. Uh, but point being here, span multiple ranges in a single session or across a single week of time, whether it's, you know, uh, some short things here and then a little bit longer, short things here, however you want to implement that certainly. But that's my recommendation for you, Carol, and the thoughts we would share in your specific situation, as well as more broadly, as people consider that question, what do I do as I am further and further into my running career? These are good thoughts. Thanks for asking. Thanks for both of the questions this week. And let's go ahead and move on to the next which is something helpful. As promised, the something helpful segment each week is going to be a concise examination of one topic. Uh, we'll try to keep that as focused as possible, both for the value of uh, taking in the information so it's not quite as scattered or quite as broad, but also um, trying to keep our focus on uh, things that are practical and applicable within, um, you know, certainly if it's, if it's complex topics, we'll break them apart and chunk them into their precise components. And then we'll be able to, if, if we need to share those over multiple different episodes to get each part, we will do that. Or if it's something we, you know, can focus on narrowly in one instance and move on, we'll do that. So that being the case, we are continuing with uh, this, and this is probably the only other episode we'll do here at the moment, but at the beginning of our fifth season, fifth year of the podcast, we wanted to kind of go back to some of our foundations briefly, uh, in part because these things morph over time and there's some new considerations that always enter into them. And also in part because many of you haven't heard us talk about these things. Um, it's been a bit since we may have like focused precisely on them. So we want to do that a little bit here. And if you missed it last week, we did begin the reflection on our three keys to thriving, which we call the running foundations. And you should go back and listen to that. If you, if you haven't heard it, I'm not, I'm not going to spend much time on those specifically uh, right now, but I will, uh, let's just briefly summarize, recap it for you because it's relevant to the continuation today. So we mentioned to avoid injury, burnout, and regret, order your running endeavors in this way. First channel your energy. This means putting out, uh, putting our efforts rather and exertions in their proper place and, and time, um, whether it's training, whether it's life, all of that stuff, how we exert ourselves and how we allocate our limited supply of energy is key. Next, number two is strengthen the animal, meaning you are an animal. <laughs> well, so this means addressing first and training the things we need to grow in order to adapt well to the training. We need to be strong. We need to be supple as uh, Phil Wharton likes to say. And 
that is all very true. Um, third, then, is raise the roof. This one is about our imperative as runners to focus foremost on aerobic development, being the most valuable asset to success in the sport. So aerobic development in efficient and effective ways. Those are the three keys to thriving. Those are our running foundations. And whenever we talk about anything that has to do with running, chances are we could point back to those things. But it's not just us. Um, we feel that those things define both our work and a fairly complete broad stroke summary of the last 70 years of running literature and wisdom. And that's a bold claim, uh, not to suggest that, that that really means that this is not original thinking and we're not trying to claim it is, but we are suggesting that if you could take all of the good ideas around the concept of running for distance running specifically, um, that they fit into these three categories, which is why we call them the foundations. And yes, there are certainly some other caveats that are likely involved that we should not neglect, but that's kind of the way it goes when you try to create broad categories. Okay, that brings us to this week's focus, which is then um, the most challenging layer in our cake. If our foundations are a cake now, um, that layer is effort. <laughs> you have heard us talk about that before because we talk about it all the time when we're talking about training. But I want to break this down a bit because when we talk about that first most important part, channeling the energy, our efforts, our energies are uh, complicated. <laughs> we need to understand them. So why does everyone talk about effort so much is the first thing to note here. Uh, we made the case, at least in part last week, um, that effort is king in, in all senses of training endeavors. Energy, in a sense, is the most important limiting capacity. So I have finite energy and how I allocate that and what degree I allocate that is the key. Uh, so effort then helps us conceptualize this principle behind training, which is, you know, in, in essence, all of the things that we're supposed to be doing when we're training um, can be conceptualized within an effort framework. So here's, here's how I would describe it. Um, training is for, the purpose of training is for growing particular physiological, mental, and emotional areas. And if that is the case, then doing so involves stressing the system or the relative systems in the Goldilocks zone, as Daniel Pink calls it, or in that kind of that nice area where it's just enough of a stress to grow, but not so much as to cause harm or jeopardize growth. So instigating stress to our system then is a product of degrees, um, degrees of exertion in a given task. And that's how we achieve that Goldilocks zone. We basically have to measure how much we are exerting within that task. Okay. So then all, all, all this to say the objectified training metrics out there are designed to optimize, to measure, and then optimize these degrees of exertion where you've got the heart rates, where you've got the pace, where you've got the, uh, various other things that runners tend to use to say, this is what I should do today to achieve this end. Um, however, the most essential piece of that optimization is degree of exertion relative to Number one, the goal and the need. So where I'm at right now, where I'm trying to get. And number two, the available capacity. And if that's true, I contend that as of yet, 
even with our conversation about Whoop, by the way. As of yet, um, I don't believe any system or formula or wearable biosensor or other things uh, is capable of accounting for all the necessary factors that contribute to exerting ourselves properly. Remember that exertion relative to where I'm at and where I'm trying to go and what's available to me right now to give. Accept intuitive perceived effort. And I threw the word intuitive in there. They use relative in most of these things, which is true as well. So I could say relative intuitive, relative perceived effort, but that's too many words. So intuitive perceived effort, perceived effort is the thing that can combine it all. So can being the operative, if we can hone the effort perception, then we can narrow the gap between what I should be doing, could be doing, and what I am doing in terms of best training practice. So that's, that's the why. Okay. That's the why we think it's possible to move in that direction, to get close to that end goal. Um, and if you are able to get close to that end goal, we think you can achieve far more in training. So what does this look like then? And how do I know? And that's the question that we get the most with these kinds of things. It's also the thing that becomes the stumbling block for nearly everyone when we are trying to address the concept of training by effort. So I'm going to, I'm going to share with you essentially what we think is necessary to achieve this well. And it is possible. We believe it to be thoroughly true that it is possible across all levels. So we said, we said earlier, start with and end with effort. Let's consider that here. Then, um, everyone talks about effort as feeling feeling is only half of the concept of effort. So how I feel equals feedback or output. That's the result of the thing I'm doing, right? Exertion, however, how much I'm exerting is the giving part, the, the input to this concept of effort. So it's both of those things. You need the, you need that feedback, the feeling feedback. You also need the exertion, which is what you're giving. Um, and you need to be aware of how both of them are involved in this puzzle. Because if I'm doing everything based on how I feel and not deliberate exertion, then I'm reactive the entire time I'm running, which again is not the point. We talk so much about, about these measurable, these objective metrics like heart rate, like pace, like cadence, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? What uh, cadence actually doesn't fall in the same category here. Uh, but some of those, you know, some of those things. Okay. So those types of things are reactionary metrics. They're telling me something as a, that results from a thing I'm doing and cadence, by the way, also kind of technically is that too, but I don't want to lump it in because it means something else for us sometimes. So if that's the case, then I need to understand that how I'm feeling happens after I exert, which means that what I'm controlling, I'm not trying to control how I feel. I'm trying to control the thing I'm doing that results in that feeling. Okay. It's a fine detail, but it's important when we consider how to achieve this in training. So trial and error is a major part of this development. As a result, you can, you can imagine we're talking about things that you can't say, do this number and it will result in this thing. Instead, it's feel this way. So, you know, it's one way or the other, and then exert in such a way to feel better or worse. <laughs> it depends on what you're trying to do. Right. So, uh, I should note back in the fifties, Arthur Lydiard, when he first began working with world-class athletes, um, recognized the need for trial and error in training. 
his strategy and kind of like a baseline strategy and training to develop um, basically what he called their um, their maximum steady state, which is the thing that then became the barometer for everything else they would do in training. Um, they did a 30 minute out and back test. So you're trying to run a certain degree of effort here. And he, he would describe that to them. And then they would say, okay, now go run 30 minutes out and 30 minutes back at that effort. And you should arrive in exactly the same point from which you began. And if you do, that means that you gave a very even effort. Um, if you came back and you got further, that means you were too easy in the beginning because you ran faster in the end. And if you couldn't get quite as far on the way back, then that means you went too hard in the beginning or something like that, right? Or you just misjudged your effort. And so there's a couple of considerations there. But the point is that trial and error became a kind of way to test my level of intuitive sense. So I like that. That's a good strategy. Um, we sometimes recommend that with runners, not always, but sometimes. So since then, many have tried to remove the error part of the trial and error. And I think to our detriment as runners, uh, because without the error part, we don't fully understand we don't fully learn the limits and establish clarity on where those limits are which become the necessary knowledge for exerting properly in different contexts so in my mind the key then here in the trial and error side of it is soft error we need to do things that have little consequence when we err on one side or another and as a result, later on, when the consequences are greater, we are better able to judge things appropriately. So that's key. Now, next up, more substantial engagement with these limits should only happen when we are ready for it. And this is important because too many of us try to do things that are effort-based when we're not yet ready to establish those limits. And so we don't get good information from it. Our intuition is warped because we're doing things in a context where we're not getting information that helps us. It's information that confounds us. That's not good. So developing fitness does not require substantial trial, trial and error in a broad sense. Um, we can build fitness before we have to do the substantial trial and error. There are some minimal ways, which we'll talk about, but uh, we start with the lower limits. That's the, the key here. That means low limits of effort and low limits of duration. Like, you know, when you build up, you start low and then build upon it. Well, the same thing is true with efforts. We start at minimal effort when we talk about a training season, a cycle, but especially at the beginning work with an athlete in general, the reason we suggest starting at minimal efforts is because we're establishing a baseline understanding of our exertional capacity. And that's not a terribly difficult thing to do because minimal is easy. Run as easy as possible without walking, right? That's, that's one place to start. That's really easy. And then we say, okay, from there, we can start building layers and it becomes so much more effective when we establish that foundation. What we're also doing is building a kind of musculoskeletal foundation. Remember what I said, when we're not ready yet for testing our exertion in a deliberate sense, an intuitive sense, um, we're not ready for that yet. It doesn't tend to go well. It doesn't give us good information. It's hard to replicate. So instead to learn to train by effort, I start with minimal efforts and build things up to a high capacity at minimal efforts before I ever change my efforts. The high capacity meaning volume. And what that does is that gives me my bottom limit, right? Which is huge. I should know what it feels like to run for two hours or so at the easiest possible effort. Uh, because then I can tell you what it feels like to run for two hours or so at 
a more moderate easy effort because it's a little bit more exertion than that minimal effort. And so we start to build the layers, right? When we know that one, then we it's not terribly difficult to say, okay, so I know what it feels like to run for two hours at that uh, moderate, easy effort, right? But then I can also try to figure out what it feels like to run for, for instance, one hour at a kind of more strong, easy effort or what we might call steady efforts. So that's how we get to these layers. It's really good. It's really important to build them in that way. And if we don't, we tend to have a very, uh, well, an incorrect sense of what it feels like to exert an easy effort because we'll tell ourselves things and as runners do this all the time. I tell myself, well, this is easy because it's the way I run whenever I'm running easy. That's bad logic. It's not easy because of what has happened in the past. It should be easy based on because I'm exerting an amount of effort that is sustainable in an easy sense. And we would define those in various different ways, but um, an easy sense, meaning like that's an, a low level of effort I can sustain for long periods of time. That, that would be easy. So we then have to consider um, how we, how we build those layers in deliberate senses and we can, we can achieve that. Now I should mention also um, when you have done that minimal effort first, and you've built up your capacity at minimal efforts, risk is much, much lower when you start adding in other layers in risk in health, risk in uh, other capacities as well, like burning out, like um, misinformation about our exertion. So well, you know, you know, you've already built tolerance. Um, you aren't pushing any extremes. You're not running, you're not running as hard as you can, like a full effort, uh, where you really haven't established clarity on what it feels like to run close to a full effort, which is important. Um, and the key that I should say here is, is that in all things building fitness, it is imperative to stay beneath the line of overdoing it. And what it means to be beneath the line then is to err always on the side of too easy than too hard, because you can build fitness by going a little too easy. You cannot build fitness by going a little too hard for long periods of time because you break or, you know, too hard means more than you can handle. If you're doing more than you can handle for long periods of time, it breaks you down. Can't have, can't happen. So the next one here then is just a quick caveat because, um, you see a lot of things out there about like, uh, you know, do the blood test thing. So, you know, like at any point in time, your blood lactate levels, well, that would be wonderful. Right. Um, I think it sounds miserable because you're always pricking yourself <laughs> during a run, but, um, there are things you can know about wh where you are in that state. The blood testing is still reactive. Keep in mind, it's I run something and then I test it to see how far it pushed me, right? Well, you can learn the signs like how my legs feel, how my breathing is, where my level of uh, my heart rate tension is, um, that type of stuff, which usually manifests as breathing. So they tend to be inseparable, but also things like mental fatigue, um, just kind of like where my level of uh, neurological impetus is right now. We did a series recently on mental fatigue. And if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it because it's huge. Um, that the nature of how that manifests for runners is incredible. So all that to say, we got some, we, we got some handicaps here to achieving this goal with the way we do some things. For instance, our watches, um, 
it may in fact be not a bad idea to leave the watch at home, especially during some of this kind of stuff, um, or at least turn off the pace. Turn off the pace. We don't need it. We don't want it. Pace is giving us bad information. Remove then the influence of on perception when I'm looking at that and I'm seeing it and it's making me think, oh, this is how I should feel because of that pace. And, uh, and I'm not. And so that means something bad. That's terrible information right there. Terrible information. But also when we see data, when we see these data in our running, they make us want to do things differently the next time because of what these data say. That is bad. We should make all our decisions in training, not what we would like to see as a result of this information, but rather what we should be doing to achieve that goal today, exertionally. So, okay, let me summarize. Our two biggest suggestions here, first in mindset. Suggestion is stop thinking I need or want to see X results from my run-ins and workouts, and instead start thinking I need to give Y effort for today's duration. That's the mindset piece. The big shift there is I don't care what I see. I shouldn't even see data because it's just not helping me that much. But if I do, I don't care what it is. I am doing the thing that I need to do exertionally with my effort. Number two is in training. Stop comparative data. This workout versus last week when I did it versus last time or versus when I was in that season when I PR'd, all that kind of stuff. That's bad. That harms our sense of appropriate sense of perceived effort. Um, and start instead then honing that intuition of perceived effort. Okay. So in isolation, in a sense, um, take every run as it is that day and get a sense for what it needs to be and how I can exert to achieve that need. Okay. And then I should just add a caveat and final note here that our, in our ideal world, because we do have an ideal world in our minds, uh, arguably all people have an ideal world in, in their minds about everything, but uh, here's what we say in terms of what would it look like to move to like the next level in this kind of stuff. We leave pace behind for everything. We don't need pace in racing. Um, if we train in such a way where we develop the intuition, and remember the trial and error piece, racing is not when you do trial and error. You do trial and error in training. And so when the late stages of training, you do race level trial and error as well. And so then when you get to race day, that's all behind you. You know what you can exert. And you're almost always pleasantly surprised because race day is way better than training by yourself as it goes. So race day, even then, leave the pacing stuff behind. We don't need it. It's not good for us. And we can achieve the same awesome big goals without it. And we can achieve far better consistency and results and better results on the day without it if we've developed things well. And then the, the other note there I mentioned earlier, but we got to get rid of the watch. If we really want to get to the end of this goal, this vision, we've got to get rid of the watch. It's not helping us achieve an intuitive sense of what we need to be doing for training. And in almost every instance, the information on the watch is causing some kind of bias in our perception. Every time whether it's a glance while I'm running or the data after the run. Don't do it. So learn specific effort ranges, learn how to apply them to everything we do, training, racing, and otherwise. And we're going to be able to achieve this goal of 
building our fitness as runners, growing as runners, developing as runners, all that kind of stuff, far better. There you go. Hopefully that was something helpful. Now let's get on to the world of running. As you know, we like to start by sharing a quick update from our crew and the people we support and what they're doing. And first up was in the market to market relay, CJ participated, which is always one of those fun things. Like you start in one place and you do this big relay to another location somewhere else. Those are fun things. Uh, so nice work, CJ. Hopefully it was a blast. And it just so happens we had a whole lot of people running in the Chicago marathon. So Andy's going to share with you about that one. It was such a great day for many of our A to Z runners. We had Andrew, who successfully paced Chicago, Ben with a massive PR. We had Chris, Julie, Kate, Marissa, Mark, Robert, Sarah, Spencer, Steph, and Haley, all with their great stories and phenomenal performances. We wish you could dig into all of them, but it was heroic. And it was a wonderful weekend for A to Z runners and many of you too. So congratulations to many of you who ran Chicago. First up in the world of running is the Chicago Marathon. I have the privilege of getting to announce one of the big pieces of news for this past weekend in the world. And that was a record, a world record by Kelvin Kiptum. It has not been officialized yet, but we do anticipate that because the Chicago Marathon is a place where many of the records have happened in the past. It's historically a great place to run fast and it was this past weekend with perfect weather. Now we I want to back up and tell you a little bit about Kelvin Kiptum because it helps put it in the story in the context of his story as a runner. He did run the fastest debut ever in Valencia in December of 2022. He ran a time of 201.53 and then just four months later he won the London Marathon. We did talk about it on the show and it was with the fastest second half marathon in history. He ran 59.45 in his second half marathon of his marathon in London. Of course he did win and he was just shy of the world record running the second fastest time in history of 201.25. So you can imagine all eyes were on him at the Chicago marathon. He didn't say that he was going to go for the world record. He was talking more about the course record because he had been struggling with a little bit of injury. However, it was made apparent early on that he was feeling good. Very good because it was a very impressively uh, executed race. It was a more aggressive than his previous one, and he ran a faster first half at Chicago in 6048. And then he ran an even faster second half for a time of 5947. And this is really amazing. This is, he started pouring it on, okay, in the later stages here. And he ran the fastest mile ever run in a marathon in a time of 418. It was mile 22. It's that downhill, uh, that's that downhill mile, but that is the fastest ever run in a marathon in history. So 418, so fast. He's 23 years old and he's had a lot of successful performances. Well, all three of them. <laughs> I guess it's not a lot. He's had three marathons. He's three for three in amazing races. He now owns three of the six fastest times in history in the marathon distance. He did shave 34 seconds off of Elliot Kipchoge's previous record, running a time of two flat 35. Two hours in 35 seconds. Absolutely incredible. He claims, he told Let's Run, that he never felt any pain. 
during this or any of his three marathons. What? What? Maybe that's what it takes to run that fast is not feeling pain. I'm not sure. But that was a very different story for Safan Hassan, who I will talk about here shortly. And how did it unfold? Daniel Matecchio ran uh, with him for the first 18 miles, but it became apparent that he wasn't going to be able to hold on. It was his marathon debut and he dropped at mile 18, but he was the pacer for Kiptum during the London marathon in April. So he was used to running with Kiptum running really fast, but at that time his role was specifically to pace. And for this event, he was supposed to be doing the full distance, but it was, it was a hot pace and it was a very fast run, of course, a world record run. And so he ended up dropping at mile 18, but he was the only one after 10 K. So at 10 K there was only Matikio and Ronald Kirui who is a pacer. So there's only one actual uh, registered runner to complete the race with him uh, at 10K. So of course, when you're running that fast, it's very unlikely you're going to have a ton of company. Benson Kipruto was runner-up. He was a last year's champion, and he finished in 204.32. Bashir Abdi was third in a time of 204.32. He was the Olympic bronze medalist, so he was always in the conversation here. Top American was Connor Mance, running 207.47 for sixth place. Clayton Young, who's a previous podcast guest, we were, we've been talking about him lately. He's been on a roll. He's been winning a lot of these USATF road racing championships. He ran a time of 208 flat for his marathon distance, getting a PR. Very exciting to see. U.S. Olympian and two-time Olympic medalist Galen Rump, Rupp was eighth. And previous podcast guest Sam Chalenga ran a marathon personal best of 208.50 for a ninth place finish. Exciting stuff. And now there's so much more I could say, but I'd go on and on and we compromise a lot of your time here on your run or wherever you're listening to this. But we're going to move on to the women's race. The women's runner, winner I alluded to just recently was, this, was Safan Hassan in only her second ever marathon. Safan Hassan, is two for two. What makes her story a little different is that she's been on the track. She is a track star 43 days after the world championships where she won bronze and silver medals in the 1500 meter in the 5,000 meter. She's now, now winning another major marathon in Chicago, just absolutely crazy. Now, remember she actually did the triple. She fell in the 10,000 where it looked like she would have been a medalist. She was in second place there and battling it out for first. So after just not very long after doing the world championships and track, here she is uh, at the marathon distance, winning a major marathon and running really fast while doing it. In fact, she ran 213.44 for the second fastest marathon time in history by a woman. Absolutely incredible performance. And uh, she ran her fastest 5K in 1522. I think it's always interesting to hear like wh what was the fastest point of their race, but 1522, and that was in the second 5K. And she won over two-time defending champion, Ruth Chepnagedich, who ran 214.18 in 2022. And that at the time was the second fastest marathon time in history. And the 2.13.44 that Sifan Hassan just ran at the Chicago Marathon is now the second fastest time in history. Lots of strong running here at the Chicago Marathon. Now, third was Margetu 
Elmu of Ethiopia in a personal best time of 2.17.09. Emily Sisson was the top American in seventh place, and she ran a time of 2.22.09. You'll remember she is our American record holder in the marathon. And she says that she battled a side stitch, which is really unfortunate in the marathon, but still ran a really great race and and was seventh. And Olympic bronze medalist Molly Seidel ran a new personal best time of 2.23.07, which comes at great timing for her with the trials just around the corner. And I, she's been battling, um, you know, health for the last couple of years. So it's great to see her in her best form ever before an Olympic year. Very exciting to see. Sarah Vaughn rounded out the top 10. She was 10th place in a time of 2.23.24. Excellent performance for her as well. Now, another awesome measure of news was Des Linden's new American Masters record. She took a few 12 seconds off of Dina Castor's time that was set on the same course eight years ago. She ran a time of 227.35, 17th place. Excellent performance for Des Linden. So fun to see her out there. We also just did an incredible job in placements for the U.S. women, even after. Uh, after the top 10, we had Gabriella Roker, Dakota Linworm, who's a previous podcast guest, Emma Bates, previous podcast guest, and Tristan Van Ord. They went 12th through 14th. So great showing for the American women. Super exciting to see. We are just th- so thrilled to be able to be in these times where all these records are going down. It's going to be exciting to see what the future brings us, but we are enjoying the time we have now of celebrating these fast times and fast records and a great time for American distance running. How good is that? How amazing. If I might note, just a caveat on, in addition to Andy's report there, um, it's not absurd to wonder whether Calvin Kiptum is on track to virtually erase Elliot Kipchoge's status. Uh, Think about it for a moment. It was Nike's epic breaking two, if you recall way back when, not that long ago, uh, the, the advent of the the great shoe movement we're experiencing right now kind of started with this Nike project, this breaking two. We think we can get someone to run under two hours in a marathon, right? Well, they failed, if you remember, in the first attempt. He did it again later, uh, but failed in the first attempt. But do you know what time he ran in that first attempt? He ran only nine seconds faster than Calvin Kiptum's Chicago Marathon New World Record. Nine seconds. And Nike was claiming that they had done crazy amounts of research to optimize everything about that run, right? And he only ran nine seconds faster than Kiptum just ran. Think about that for a second. And Kiptum is like, what, three for three? uh, Okay, so you get my point. There is something here that we need to be watching. Okay, now, that said, let's note Sifan Hassan a moment as well. Because, as Andy mentioned, there is something about her that is incredibly special i'm saying that that's an understatement on purpose um she is literally a thing beyond all other things in the sport not one runner man or woman has ever been what she is think about this she's capable of winning every level of every distance for a distance runner in every way she can run races of different types and fashions she can run at the front and crush everyone she can run from behind and and pass everyone she she can do all the things in all the distances she has beaten the world's best in every distance and yes i mean it that way 
She's set world records in several of those distances. And this would have been a world record if not for a safest world record uh, just, you know, in Berlin just recently. And by itself is already a very strange thing there. But this this is par for the course with Sifan Hassan, which is just saying something amazing. So if you have not been paying attention to her, don't miss it. <laughs> What's happening right now it probably will never happen again. I mean, you, you don't see a, a single athlete be like this more than I, how often, you know, like never, basically. You've got a couple of, you have a handful of them across all disciplines in the history of the sport. She is something else. Well, moving on, next next up here, uh, we wanted to share uh, this particular story about Dot Sowerby. She's 90, and she's breaking all the records, <laughs> among other things she's doing. So uh, Dot Sowerby is 90 years old. She turned 90 years old this year. Broke the U.S. half marathon age group record by nine minutes when she ran 3.33 and change. Nine minutes. <laughs> um, earlier this year, she also broke the 1,500-meter world record age group, which is the 90 to 94 age group, by the way, um, by a full minute. And her backstory is incredible. Let me tell you a couple of quick details here. First, a, a wonderful quote from the article. This article, by the way, was published on Women's Running, part of Outside Magazine. And uh, here's, here's what the article writes. When she was 50 and ready to sign up for her first race, the running space, it seems, wasn't prepared for the speedy rocket Sowerby was. The race registration age range ended right at 50. So she said, I told the race organizers, next year I'll be older and you won't even have my age group, she says. And they said they never thought anyone ran after the age of 50. But since then, I've always been pushing the age category more and more. Yeah, by the way, that was like in the 80s. That was 1983, if I'm doing my math correctly. So they even talked about how she, as a youth, uh, not not young youth, but like high school, college, did tons of sports. She just she had brothers, and they had her doing all the active stuff when she was growing up. And so, as a result, she just continued on with that type of stuff, and uh, reached a certain point where um, she had talked about running, and people were like, you know, well, women don't run. <laughs> that was a thing, right? It wasn't that long ago, unfortunately. Well, um, in fact, she was doing things like playing basketball and tennis, I think. And yet not running because that was just a thing people didn't do. And then when she did start running, which was basically in her 40s, she felt like she had to like run secretly in her neighborhood because it would look weird to people to see someone of her age running. <laughs> it was the way she framed it. It's like, that's that's funny. <laughs> I hope she doesn't feel that way anymore. Uh, but now here she breaks the half marathon age group record, right, by nine minutes. Oh, by the way, it was her first half marathon of her life <laughs> at 90 years old she thinks why not try something new i've done all the other stuff um uh, so funny funny backstory there once again she had to contact the race director ahead of time because age groups at the particular race she was doing chicago land uh i think it was chicago land chicago something um the age groups ended at 70 so she had to say hey you need to change that for me so she can actually be in the results in her age group. Uh, good thing she did because she got that record and smashed it. Well done, Sowerby and Dot Sowerby. We really are fascinated by uh, your experiences and impressed by what you do and hope to see more and hear more about it. 
Next up and last on our docket here is just a note about we've been talking about the ultra marathon world and Courtney DeWalter's just been lighting it up. And uh, many have started to suggest she has taken the mantle from Camille Heron, which was a self-proclaimed mantle. But still, Camille Heron called herself the queen of the ultra world. Well, Camille Heron is responding to DeWalter's stuff in uh, an article published on Run 247, 247. Um, Camille Heron just smashed the Spartathlon course record by over two minutes. This is about a 150-mile race. Um, it's a historic thing because it's like a route that was run, you know, in ancient times uh, and 150 miles at that. So Camille Heron smashes that record. And it should be noted, uh, she won by an hour. So the people behind her, the next two women, in fact, both ran under it too. But uh, so an hour under the under the next best fastest time on the course, and uh, that that's something. That's something. She had a spate of DNFs and DNSs, um, not starting, not finishing some ultras recently, and people started to say things like, "Ah, she needs to retire. She can't do this. She can't hack it," which is terrible. People should never do that. So she gets back at them with one of these. And that's very impressive stuff. So yet again, we get to uh, wonder what a Heron and DeWalter face-off looks like at the right moment when they're both there and ready to roll, and that would always be fun. But uh, for now, the debate remains of, at least among these two, if not more, who are the ultra-marathon tops of the game. All right. Well, that's probably enough for today. There's always more that can be said. We'll get to it the next time. So make sure you submit your question for next week because we'll answer one or two of them every single week. And you can do that at a to z running.com slash question. And we'll talk to you then.